Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. I'm very excited today to have a good friend from AngelList and from Protocol Labs, Andy Bromberg. Andy comes from the States, obviously, uh, originally started his life in Boston, and we'll hear a little bit about that, and went to Stanford to study and dropped out, which is one of those great stories of how somebody kicks ass and drops out, although we're not recommending that in this podcast. If you're in school, stay in school. Um, and we're going to hear his story um, and just a little bit more about Andy. He's co-founder and president of CoinList and has been part of one of the biggest movements in history in the last year and a half in, in both in terms of wealth creation, but in terms of how companies get financed. And with that, welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thanks for having me. So Andy, as I alluded to in the introduction, we love to hear background stories. And your background is like one of those that has been kind of made famous by the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and, and the movie Social Network. And it's that you know you get to the point where you see more money or more opportunity outside of school than in school. But judging from your LinkedIn profile, it sounds like you had a lot of side hustles going on while you were at Stanford. And I love the fact that your dad made an awesome recommendation for you on LinkedIn too. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that background, where it started, what you were doing at Stanford, and, and then ultimately why you chose to leave. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've always enjoyed uh, building things on the side, even if it didn't seem like it was going to be a massive venture scale business. I've enjoyed the, the process of putting things together. And so even before Stanford, when I was uh, growing up, I always ran a bunch of websites, doing different things, selling different products, did a bunch of affiliate marketing, ran a website design consultancy firm, all of that. And when I got out to Stanford, it it felt even more appropriate to do that because I was surrounded by a bunch of people that had done the same thing and were wanting to do the same thing. And I think probably the most impactful thing that happened, I think I spent the most time on while I was in school there, was I took this amazing class called Startup Engineering taught by Paul G. Srinivasan, who is now the CTO of Coinbase, just sold Earn.com to them and was formerly a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And he taught this class, Startup Engineering, where he showed you how to build a startup, but really almost more from a technical perspective how to use command line tools, how to use GitHub, how do you ship product? And we all took that class. And then after the class, a bunch of us kept spending time together and ended up starting the Stanford Bitcoin group. This was back in 2012, 2013. And over the course of the next couple of years, while I was still in school, we spent a lot of time on the Stanford Bitcoin group, doing academic research on Bitcoin and blockchain technology, doing industry advocacy, building little side projects, working in the space. And that was probably the, the biggest time sink while I was there. And, uh, and it kind of made a lot of the other projects that I've been working on, the websites I've been running, fall into the background while we worked on some of that stuff. Mm. So that's the Bromberg Web Assets was your design firm? Bromberg Web Assets went by a bunch of names, Modernist Media, Bromberg Web Assets. Uh, the Web Assets were mostly um, kind of this portfolio of websites that I was running at the time and uh, just trying to do some interesting things and, and build some interesting products there. Mm. And so from what I gather, a lot of the guys that, you went to school with that dropped out and started doing other things along with you make up some of the who's who at the moment of, of, of web and internet. Do you want to name drop a little bit just to, to some of the people, some of the peers that you, you left college with and that are doing some interesting things? Yeah, we're, we're certainly trying. I don't know about who's who quite yet, but, uh, but hopefully one day, I think the Stanford Bitcoin group in particular was a really uh, interesting group because we got into the space early. And so a bunch of the people are still working in that space uh, so there's John Backus and Alan Meyer who run uh, a project called Bloom, which is a decentralized kind of credit scoring app and product. And they uh, they just ran a token sale and are doing really well. They also started a project, Cognito, to do identity verification. 
There's Ryan Breslow who runs a payment process company called Bolt and is also, you know, really interested in crypto, spends a bunch of time there. Uh, Matt Riles and Pat Briggs uh, sold one of the projects that got built by the Stanford Bitcoin group to Coinbase. And Matt spent, spent several years there. Uh, Chris Barber still works on a bunch of, of different projects. And so, you know, we, we had this whole group of people that wanted to spend more time in that space. And now a lot of them are, are still working in. Hmm. Okay. Well, it sounds from your, your background that between that and Coinless, you worked on uh, Sidewire uh, for three years. And, and maybe you can walk us through kind of what that what journey was like, what you learned from there. How was that different from what you had expected in, in school and, and maybe the lessons learned there, which then became the foundation for what you're doing now? Yeah, it was it was very different. So Sidewire was a product in the media space, um, so totally unrelated to, to crypto. And it was a product to allow experts, mostly political experts, to chat publicly about the news of the day. So imagine kind of Twitter without the noise or seeing the iMessage conversations of really prominent political celebrities, people like politicians, pundits, analysts, reporters. And it was a great experience. You know, as, a, as an aside, I started that in 2014 um, with my co-founder, Tucker. And the reason I wasn't doing something in crypto at that point was in 2014, I felt like it was a coin flip whether or not there was going to be one cryptocurrency forever. It was just going to be Bitcoin or if they're going to be a bunch of them. And I was looking at it and saying the startup attrition rate is so high and anything I can think of doing requires one of those two outcomes. I don't want to add a 50% failure rate to what is already a really hard thing to do. And so, you know, Tucker was a great partner for me to start uh, Sidewire with. And uh, we felt like the timing was right going to the U.S. election cycle. And so we ran that. I learned a lot of things there. One is being really thoughtful about industry and market. Media is a very tough industry to be in. And, uh, and crypto almost feels like the opposite. Media, everyone always says, you know, it's dying, it's going down. We need to find a way to fix it. I think it's much more interesting for me right now to spend time in something where the industry is rising mm-hmm. and you have this kind of rising tide effect instead of trying to save, you know, the crashing plane uh, of a different industry. And I also learned a lot about building product and figuring out, you know, how you build product that people want mm-hmm. and, uh, and how to build a consumer product that resonates with a really big audience instead of a niche one. And we ended up not being able to pull that off in the way we wanted to. And so, yeah, in summer of last year, we wound that down after not quite getting there on one of the sides of the marketplace that we were trying to build and, uh, and not being able to build a compelling enough consumer product for those people. Mm-hmm. And then how did the transition to uh, CoinList come from there? So the CoinList founding story is interesting. It was originally built as a collaboration between AngelList and Protocol Labs in order to run the Filecoin sale, which was this project built by, by Protocol Labs. And they just needed a place to run their sale. And they brought AngelList in to help with some of the compliance efforts and collaborate on it. And midway through that process, they stepped back and said, wow, this is really hard. It's costing us a lot of money on the product and legal sides. And every single token sale is going to need to do this exact same thing. This should probably be an independent company serving all of those token sales using what we've learned here. Uh, and so they made the decision to spin CoinList out as a new independent entity and needed a new founding management team to put that, that team together. And so at that point, it's kind of serendipitous. I was winding down Sidewire. CoinList was getting stood up and needed a team to start it. And so with my, my four co-founders uh, at CoinList, we, uh, we jumped over. The other four of them were more directly affiliated with AngelList historically. Three of them were actually at AngelList at the time. One of them uh, was uh, had started Republic, which is an equity crowdfunding platform, but had been at AngelList beforehand. And uh, and they came over, and then I happened to know a bunch of the AngelList people, the Protocol Labs team, and so I got brought over uh, as well, and, and the five of us started the company. 
Cool. Now, if you go back to Sidewire, one of the things that's always interesting to explore with 2020 hindsight is the lessons that you learned that caused the ultimate failure of any company or success of any company you were involved with. And one of the things that you're probably tasked with day in, day out, every time you're looking at listings on CoinList is what are the critical factors that will make this a successful listing? What are the lessons that you learned during your time at Sidewire that make a successful company? And how are you incorporating that into your decisions of what gets listed on CoinList? Yeah, when we talk about, uh, you know, I'll take that in reverse. When we talk about successful token project, we talk a lot about the primary categories of evaluation being the same as any startup. You look at the product, you look at the team, you look at the market. In this case, you look at the deal because we're actually looking at you know, the specific financing step of, of these projects. And, uh, and team, product, and market are three really big criteria you have to look at. In the case of tokens, there's a couple more steps. You really need to examine things like the token economics, which we can talk about, the legal structure. But, but team, product, and market are, are really important ones. And I think the lessons learned at Sidewire apply to all three of those. I'm incredibly proud of the team we built. And that was something we always spent a lot of time on and really focused on. And I, I don't think we would have gotten nearly as far as we did had we not been able to build the caliber of team that, that we were able to put together. And so that's an incredibly important one. You know, when you look at, at product, that's where I think we, we fell a little bit short. We were building this two-sided marketplace for experts to create this content and then readers to consume it. We did a great job getting experts to create content and built a product that was really compelling for them and just never quite got over the hump on building something that readers wanted to consume. And so I think we, we look at the exact same thing in the token space. A lot of these projects are not building, building products that people want to use. And that is something you have to be able to do if you're going to be successful. And then the market goes back to what I was saying earlier, that the media market is a tough one. I wouldn't uh, necessarily recommend people spend a ton of time in it because it is really challenging to, to build a successful business in a market that is moving down. And that's something we look at a lot in these crypto companies as well, is what is the addressable market for these, these projects? Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of the same criteria that one would expect as a VC to look at, with the exception of token economics, which we can get to a little later. But before I do that, we have uh, my colleague, Kieran, here, who's joining us for the podcast. And um, Kieran, I'll, I'll pass it to you. I know you had a couple of questions regarding the state of play with ICOs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting to see that last year, 2017, is where CoinList came quite popular and took off with, with Mammoth fundraising like, like Filecoin, for example. Um, but where, where do you think we currently are in the sort of state of play with ICOs? I mean, we take a look at it here from, from a venture perspective and, and ICO funding is going down somewhat. But do you think this is representing like a, a fundamental change? We've, we've reached the sort of peak in ICO funding in, in that as a structure and we're going to move towards different structures or what, what's your current thoughts on, on where we are with this sort of like token sale? I do think it's it's very early, and the market will be cyclical as it as it figures out what the right structures are and and uh, how the ICO market will push forward and reach its kind of eventual conclusion. I think the biggest trend that I'm seeing right now is a bifurcation between high and low quality projects. We have to remember, and I try and remind myself of this every day: the ICO market in its modern form is really about 12 months old. There were a few ICOs before that, but the wave happened starting about 12 months ago, and that means that at that point, for the last three, six, nine months, investors haven't had a lot to go on. They haven't been able to do effective diligence because, you know, where is your evidence of what is going to be good and what isn't? This is a brand new structure, brand new type of project. And I think we're seeing just now that investors now have enough data points to be able to have that sophistication around how to do diligence, 
and, and how to determine which projects are good or not. It's not perfect yet. There's a long way to go. We need to see these products ship and, and actually start to get usage. But we're now seeing that the really high quality projects are able to raise the money they need to raise, often in similar magnitudes to what they were raising last year, but that the low quality projects are being less and less capable of that. And that's, I think, when you talk about the market going down, I think we're going to see fewer ICOs get funded or reach their goals as investors get more sophisticated. But I don't know that the total magnitude is going to go down in any sort of meaningful way or that the size of the most successful rounds is going to go down in any sort of meaningful way. So I do think that we're kind of at that first in the, in the hype cycle, that first move towards a trough where, you know, the, the low quality things start to get filtered out and eventually we'll hit some sort of bottom there. And then there'll be more and more high quality projects rising up in the future. And in terms of the sort of structure of the distribution mechanisms, I know you guys are experimenting and partnering, for example, on, on this airdrop with Definity. And I know that that's a topic that you've written about and, and spoken about in the past. I mean, do you maybe want to speak a bit about that and also other innovations in the distribution mechanisms you think we're going to see over the next coming years? Yeah, I think it's a great question. The ICOs, when they came about, again, mainly last year, were really meant to accomplish two things. They're meant to accomplish funding for the underlying entity and distribution of tokens to an early set of users. That's great. But it's not obvious to me that it makes sense for those two things to be so tightly coupled. And the investors that are buying in an ICO may not be the users that you eventually want to distribute to. So it's the kind of intuitive and easy solution for the first thing to do, but not necessarily the right one. And so one model we're seeing a lot of companies experiment with is, as you alluded to, conducting, and this is what Definity's done, conducting private sales to investors who are financially motivated and want to own large chunks of the network. And then airdropping, so giving away tokens for free to a large set of potential users in quantities where they'll actually use it. Very few investors are going to buy, you know, several million dollars worth of a token and then use several million dollars of that token. They're buying for the appreciation, the eventual upside. And so I do think decoupling those, those components, the fundraising, the distribution makes sense. And the private sale plus airdrop model is an interesting one. Um, we're seeing a lot more companies experiment with more aggressive block rewards. So mining uh, mechanisms that can distribute to eventual end users. And I think we're going to see a lot more uh, models like that uh, with different types of fundraising as people sort out what you can do with with a token and, and how to get it to the end users. Karen, I know you wanted to explore the Filecoin story a little bit more, but maybe before we do that, you can walk us through a little bit about how Coinlist helps structure these token economics. Because you know, with, with any one of these emerging ideas, you're playing with concepts, some of that are eons old. The idea of macroeconomic and how to deal with the utility of fiat um, and how that gets distributed among society or with a shelter group and private shares and all of that are stuff that's being rehashed, right? And how much of an active role do you guys take in saying, well, look, you know, based upon this project, we speculate that the utility token needs to be this amount in a ratio relative to this amount for the investor base and as a consequence should have these limitations such that all of these things play out long-term. Yeah. So formally that's not something we really offer as a service. We're mostly focused on facilitating the sales, helping with compliance, helping with things like airdrops. Informally, that is something we spent a lot of time talking about and talking with these projects about because when we have high quality projects that we want to work with, we want to help them any way we can and figuring this out is hard. And, and to your point, there is not a lot of precedent for it and figuring out what that looks like. So I think the the core piece, the, the central idea of a, of a token economic model 
And I think the simplest way to explain it is that any internal economy for a token has a bunch of different types of participants. So if we talk about Filecoin, for example, on the Filecoin network, there are people who want to store files, people who have extra storage space, and then a set of verifiers who are verifying that it's happening correctly. We can talk about how that system works, but there's these three different parties that are all important to, to the system actually functioning. And when we think about token economics, what we're saying is that all three of those parties need to be appropriately incentivized to do the right thing. And on top of that, no bad actors can be improperly incentivized to mess with the system. So there can't be bad incentives that would cause someone to do the wrong thing and, and you know poorly verify or falsely store files or anything like that. And the way to think about token economics from my perspective, the simplest way is think through each of the parties that are on the system. And that's the good parties you want and then also potential attackers and think about their incentive set based on what you designed. And we, we often see with projects token economic systems that make sense 95% of the way there where everything is good and it makes sense. And you get to one of these parties and you say, Ooh, you know, there is an incentive for an attacker to perform this sort of attack and hurt the network, or there's not quite enough of an incentive to get enough verifiers in the network. And you just need to keep tweaking and modifying that until you get to a place where you can feel confident that everyone is aligned in making the network successful and no one is misaligned to try to take it down. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, uh, Andy, the market uh, for, for token financing is, is super early. But uh, I mean, when it came to the Filecoin ICO and, and pre-sale, which, which totaled, I think, around 200 million in 2017, you had, you had a few examples of previous projects, the DAO, for example, which had, had raised a bunch of money and maybe not been as successful. But how did you even go about thinking about how you structured that and which stakeholders you, you sort of spoke to to understand from, from a regulatory perspective, from how much you might even be able to raise, from the technical infrastructure required? What, what was the process looking like internally for you guys there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I really should say first that uh, all credit to the, the core protocol labs team for putting that together. And the current Coinless team was really just playing a supporting role in that process. And they, they were able to put that fundraise together. But you know, speaking for them a little bit, I think there's a couple considerations. One is that when you're looking to raise that much money, $205 million was, was close to the final total, you need some really big checks. You're not going to get to $205 million with a bunch of five, $5,000, $10,000 know, checks. You need millions of dollars from certain individuals or, or parties. And so they were really thoughtful about getting those institutional parties aligned that could invest hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in the sale. And that forms the basis for a really successful fundraiser of that size. And they spent a lot of time talking to those people, convincing them because they were really kind of the first really big legitimate ICO. And and there are a lot of hard things to understand about what you're buying when you're buying into an ICO, when you're buying into a token sale. What do these tokens actually mean? They had a whole new structure. They were the first people to to use the SAFT. They created the SAFT. They had to explain this new financing structure. And so um, they spent a lot of time doing that. And then they also wanted to get as many investors as they could under the bounds of the regulatory regime they, they felt they fell under. And that's where they ran that public sale on CoinList and allowed any accredited investor to invest. And that was really just a matter at that point of how many people can we get in and get as stakeholders in this network because we think that's what will make us successful in the long run when we're building this distributed system. And so for them, I think it was very much foundational capital from large institutional investors and then getting as wide distribution as possible with uh, a more public sale. Absolutely. We're, we're speaking, I think, a week after one of the SEC regulator from the US, the head of corporate finance division, said that 
Ether is not a, a security. Obviously, CoinList has a pretty important role to play as linking accredited investors to these these big uh, crypto projects. But how do you guys see the, the regulatory landscape evolving over the coming years? And also more from a, a sort of normative perspective, what would you like to see introduced or what sort of what policies, if you were the regulator, would, would you introduce? And if I can tack a question to that, since you're doing a tour of Europe, which jurisdictions do you see are going to be leading that? Absolutely. Yeah. Both great questions. On the, on the first one, on the regulatory environment, we, we think the SEC in the U.S. has been pretty intentional about how they've approached this. They've taken a slow approach. They haven't kind of done a ton against the industry. They've just been trying to figure it out. And our feeling is that where they're going to come down, they've been very precise about this. The SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, has said over and over again, he hasn't yet seen an ICO that's not an offering of securities. But there's a, an important point to make here. He is not saying he has never seen a token that's not a security. And what that suggests to us is that at the time of the offering, these are securities that need to be sold as such. But that eventually they can evolve into something that's not a security. And perhaps Ethereum is a great use case for that. The director of corporate finance said Ethereum is not a security now, but he did say, but at the time of the sale, we don't know, it might have been a security. And so our pers- perspective there is we need to help these issuers sell securities in their initial offering. But there's a, a way, there's a path towards those tokens eventually becoming non-security. So the Filecoin model was sell the SAF, something that's explicitly a security, and then eventually have that SAF spit out tokens that are not securities at some point in the future. And we think that model will will persist. And so a couple things to answer your second question that we would like to see. There's a lot of uncertainty around different aspects of, of regulatory nature, especially in the U.S. on this topic. One is, really importantly, where is that line? If something's transitioning from being a security to a non-security, that's awesome that we have that answer. We feel like we have that answer. But we need a way to draw that line and say, at what point has it become a non-security? And, and when can we kind of freely move these tokens around and getting more clarity on that definition is, is incredibly important. There are a lot of great people working on that right now. The second, I think probably under discussed is tax considerations. Everyone's been talking about the securities nature. It's a really important discussion, but understanding how these token transactions play into tax is really important. Right now, there's a lot of arguments that any token transaction is a taxable event. If I go and use a token to buy a cup of coffee that might be a taxable event. That's clearly not a workable solution and not really an intentional movement by the government. That's just a, f- a function of how these fit into existing regulation. So we'd like to see some more clarity on the tax issues as well. In terms of jurisdictions, there's really two pieces here. One is the jurisdictions that will need to get clarity for this ecosystem to flourish. The second is which jurisdictions are going to set the precedent. On the first, the ecosystems we need to function are the ones with either one high populations or two high densities of capital. If all the high capital sources and countries have really restrictive regimes around this movement, the projects just won't be able to get funded. And so we need the capital sources. And that's when you, you hear about, you know, think about major countries like the US, like the UK, like Germany. You need these places to be able to have some sort of model around token funding. Otherwise, these projects won't be able to raise money. And so that's important that they get there. In terms of who we're seeing lead it, there's a lot of jurisdictions that are are taking different approaches. Some are clearly saying they're going to regulate it, but perhaps being a little bit slow and intentional on how they're regulated. So I would point to the US and the UK as two examples of that. Some are taking really aggressive stances in intentionally allowing it. 
So that's places like Sweden or Malta that are trying to become havens or zoo trying to be, become havens for this sort of, of development. And then some are just being very open and not really doing anything token specific, but just saying, we don't really care. Come and do what you want here. We are most excited about kind of the trend of that second group, Sweden, Malta, those setting precedent that then the capital and population heavy countries can draw models from, maybe not take everything, maybe not be as permissive, but at least take aspects of it. And that's where you see certain of those countries looking and saying, you know, we think we have a definition for when something is not a security, when it's something that can be freely traded. And maybe aspects of those definitions can be taken into consideration by these more population or capital dense, uh, dense jurisdictions. Cool. Now, if we, if we move away a little bit from the state of play into how things will be and you see all these venture funds popping up that are calling themselves crypto funds. It doesn't necessarily mean that those funds are bringing with them the people like the Fred Wilsons of the world who, who also know much about how to scale companies. What do you see the current state of art is in terms of marrying old venture models that have smart capital or with experience with crypto investments, which tend to favor a, a very different type of LP GP relationship in the way that the fund is structured. I think there's going to be evolution here. I do think just to get one thing out of the way. You were not suggesting this, but people often do. I hear all the time ICOs or token sales are killing venture capital. That's not happening. There is still immense value add for people that can build businesses and I think specifically we'll find a new class of people that are real token venture capitalists that can have expertise in building token businesses in the same way you've got great enterprise venture capitalists or you've got great consumer venture capitalists. You'll have great token venture capitalists. And I think that model is going to persist. I think what's going to lead to maybe these different types of funding models in the token space is figuring out what the right funding structure is. So most of the initial ICOs raised money once, right? Said we're going to go and run an ICO and we'll never raise money again. This is going to be all the capital we ever have. At that point, you just need as much as you can get if you're not going to race again. And so, yes, you want company builders involved, but you also just want these crypto funds that are able to invest capital and leave you alone and let you build your project because you need as much of it as you can. I think if we move to something like more tranche or milestone-based fundraising where projects raise multiple rounds, you'll see a structure not dissimilar to the venture structures where Early on, you have really focused, involved, helpful people, the token venture capitalists getting involved. And then perhaps in the later stages, you have more generalist um, capital sources that play less of a direct role in kind of the governance and, and, and structuring of the product, but just provide the scaling capital that these entities need. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bifurcation there and we start to see uh, really helpful in the weeds investors early on in these projects and then more general capital sources coming in uh, later when the, the project just needs to scale. It doesn't necessarily need that help. One of the questions that I've always been keen to ask someone, and I think you're probably best positioned to answer, is what the hell do you do with all that money? Is Coinless going to be a fund manager assistant for tokens raised on it? So if you raise $200 million, you know you can't spend it all at once, but it's enough money that you kind of have to worry about inflationary value loss. And then you have volatility and then you have conversion from token to fiat to you know pay the bills and rent and electricity and all that. And that requires a full-time job. 
that's fund management. And I don't know if that is, exists as a service for companies that have, is that Coinless's future revenue model? We're not looking right now at doing treasury management. We do know that most of the big projects that have raised a lot of money hire treasury managers, controllers, CFOs that can help manage that. Something we, we do plan to help with is moving from, if they raise in crypto, partially, if they raise in Ethereum or Bitcoin or something else, helping them move into fiat if they want to on whatever pace they want to. And projects take wildly different perspectives there. Some keep all their crypto, some immediately move out, some move out over the course of six months. And so we want to help with that. But uh, yeah, when you raise that much money, you need a treasury function. You need a financial function in the company. We are aware of projects that have hired internal traders that are you know just trading using that that kind of treasury that they have. We are aware of a bunch that are just trying to combat you know, inflation and volatility and you know, make sure that they can maintain their value. We know some, obviously, that have raised their own venture funds to build on their platform. And uh, and so I think we're going to see a lot of different perspectives there. But yeah, but I do. It's like meta, meta funds within funds. Kind yeah. of like, the, like Slack fund on Slack, right? Yeah, exactly. Tokenized Slack. Another question that I wanted to, to explore, and then maybe, Ken, you can ask yours, is this idea of the structure of financing being the ICO as a different but parallel equivalent to a milestone-driven venture round. And those consume a certain amount of a CEO's time. And the, the promise with the ICO is that it consumes a certain amount of time, but then never again, right? Whereas the typical milestone-driven one, it's like a recurring theme every 12 or 18 months, and that takes up the CEO's time and energy. But in exchange, gets feedback from VCs on all sorts of things and can amend strategy accordingly. If you take that away, considering your experience with Sidewire, what, if any, efficiency do you see uh, gained um, by the, the coin list and ICO listing model in terms of the CEO and the management team's time vis-a-vis -vis the loss of the iterative process of fundraising? Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess, first of all, I, I will say I'm not, I'm not convinced that the one and done model is going to persist forever. I don't know that the capital is going to be willing to support that forever. And, and we'll probably move to some sort of milestone based funding at some point, mm -hmm. whether that's venture capital style where you have to keep going out and raising or a different example is so Blockstack, which raised on CoinList, raised an ICO, but has in their legal docs that if they don't hit certain predefined milestones, they return capital to investors, oh, okay. which is an interesting model because it does, it is the advantage that you're saying of, not needing to fundraise again, but it also has the advantage of the investors of protecting their investment if things go wrong. One thing that scares me, and it's funny to say this in such a hot environment of, of ICOs, but it does worry me that there are ugly ducklings at the seed stage that struggle to raise and just barely raise and then end up taking off or slightly pivoting. And you know, I'm talking about traditional companies here and are able to build something incredible. And one reason I don't like the one and done model is that it doesn't allow for that. If you are not the most attractive early stage company, then you may not be able to raise that huge round. And if that's your only chance, then the company probably will not have a chance of being successful in the long run. And I think especially in something as new as crypto, there are probably a lot of those, or there will be a lot of those as the market cools down a little bit where the idea is so radical or different that people just don't get it initially and aren't willing to give it the capital it needs. And if they only are able to raise once, then it won't ever succeed. And so that's one reason I, I do want this milestone funding to, to occur is uh, if projects can come, come up with a radical idea, start to prove it out, and then raise more money after, mm -hmm. that's the way that these companies have, have traditionally gone. So 
Yeah. In terms of efficiencies, there are massive ones to CEOs not need to raise over and over again. But I'm, I'm not sure that that outweighs uh, the disadvantage of not giving companies a chance to prove themselves before they need to, to raise even more. Can I ask you a loaded question? Hit me. All right. If you had the chance to raise 200 million ICO for Sidewire back when you started it, knowing that ultimately the economics didn't work out because of the traditional model that you took and also because of the nature of the industry, do you think you would have folded in the, and just said, guys, here's your coins back. It's not going to work. Or do you think you'd still be at it? I think, well, it's a really interesting question. I, I don't know how a token would have fit into Sidewire. And so I would have had a tough time ever committing to raising money without a really well-defined token economic model. Can I just stop thinking out of the question? Though? But yeah. like, let's pretend there was. Uh, pretend there was. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we'd still be working at it. I think when you have that capital, you can keep experimenting. And, and I fundamentally believe that there's a way that some of the ideas that were part of Sidewire have merit. Mm-hmm. And given long enough runway, you keep working on those things and, and you may be able to get there. And the industry trends change and so you'd, you'd work on it. So, you know, we would have tried and tried again, I think. And we would have made that clear to investors up front that we're taking this much money because we think media is really hard and we're going to need a lot of time to figure this out. And and our existing investors did give us a lot of runway to do that. But if we had more, I think we would have kept experimenting. Mm. Just to take it back to the milestone financing again, I mean, the, the block stack example is a super interesting one. That's codifying the milestone financing in legal docs but there, there are other um, ways of structuring that there are you know maybe in the future smart contracts network usage and invocation of smart contracts means that this capital is released there's second of all there's community foundations that are potentially adjudicating on this is the third one and, and most relevant for you guys is this, is there a role for investment platforms like coinless to play and potentially like releasing tranched capital or absolutely i i think that's something we could do i am less I, I don't think it's time yet, though, for a lot of these smart contract style ones or anything like that. At the end of the day, if you're selling securities, you're selling legal docs and, and you're engaging in a legal transaction. Investors have recourse if you're doing that. They can sue you if you do something wrong. And so I, I think that, you know, I'm not sure that there's much of an advantage to us doing that over it being in the legal docs because the projects have named founders and they can be, you know, chased after if they do something that, you know, is, is, uh, is not true according to their, their legal documentation. And so I, I don't know that we need a third party to do that. That happens today in startups. If people, you know, say that they're going to do something when they sign fundraising documents and they don't do it, there's recourse. And I think that'll persist in this economy. I don't think just because it's tokens, people can wave their hands and say, uh, you know, we don't have to follow the law. We can, we can do whatever we want. So we always like to wrap up with a couple of fun questions. If you, you know, we're talking about the, the nature of crypto and Bitcoin being the cutting edge of today's, not only financings, but also how we might in the future be consuming goods uh, through the utility that they provide uh, on the network. And if we were to go back in history and say, well, there must have been something cutting edge equivalent to this back in the day. If you had to pick your career, hundred years ago, 200 years ago, and it couldn't be obviously crypto, but something like as cutting edge as it, what do you think you would be doing? The Andy of 200 years ago, what do you think you'd be? 
I, I think I'd be looking at this is industrial revolution time. And uh, I think I'd be looking at building machines. I think that's the, the efficiency gains from the creation of machines that didn't require humans to crank them and turn them and, and, and provide the energy was revolutionary. And I, you really see this as a similar thing where it's enabling scale in a way that has previously been restricted by the systems we've been under and it's enabling markets that previously couldn't exist. And so the, the efficiency gains from yeah, machinery creation, I think is, uh, it's probably what I'd be looking at 200 years ago. Mm. You know, the reason why I thought of that question was because we were chatting before the podcast started that you're from Boston. And, and and in Boston, I used to live there as well. And one of the things that I did you know, was go visit Martha's Vineyard and learn about the whaling industry. And I realized how much the whaling industry is so similar to venture capital. You know, They used to raise money it's a good one. to get on a boat, to go out for so many years, to find a number of whales, to come back and sell them. And even the terminology of whales and all that stuff... And I just thought, wow, like some of these models don't really change. They just kind of evolve and adapt. Um, in the same sort of historical theme, we sometimes look back now at things that have happened historically and think, oh, my God, how could that have happened? How did we let that happen? You know, an example is slavery. What do you think we'll look back on 50 years from now and think, wow, we were doing it this way? It doesn't have to necessarily be like a civil rights or you know, human rights type thing. It can be anything. It could be economic. It could be product. It could be ecological, whatever. What do you think we'll look back on 50 years from now and be like, holy crap, what in the world were we thinking? I think the, the world ultimately will trend towards openness. And so an idea that I'm really excited about is, is the idea of competitive governance and people being able to more freely choose the jurisdictions that they live under. And, you know, different governments have different advantages and disadvantages for different classes of people. And I don't think that it's necessary. I don't know that it makes a ton of sense for someone to be born somewhere. And it's a function of that be forced to live in that jurisdiction forever. There are obviously societal and economic factors that play into that as well. But the idea that we could enable a world of governments competing to provide the best service and people being able to choose that and, you know, vote with their voice or by exiting from one to another is really interesting. So I think some of the restrictiveness around where people are living and the jurisdictions they fall under around the world is something that will eventually, I don't know if it's a 50 year timeline, but at some point in the future, we'll look back and say, wow, now I get to choose where I live. And when I say choose where I live, I mean, choose the regime that I fall under. Yeah. How do we ever force people to live where they were originally born? Which is, which is the snow crash model, right? Like if you've read that novel, yeah. it's really interesting because I think it predated the crypto trend and in using different sort of mini citizenships to be able to trade between them and then the rights and the protections of each one of them and, and, and how do you roam across different ones. So if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read the book Snow Crash, you totally need to. And right. I would say, yeah, that crypto is a, a step towards this competitive money. Let's, let's let people choose their monetary system mm. and eventually maybe they can choose their governance as well. All right, last question. If you, if you had to have one superpower, what would it be? One superpower, what would it be? I've always thought the freezing time one is, is underrated. <sighs> yeah. That's a good one. Being able, to, being able to stop time. That is a good one. And move around, do what I want to do, and then have it resume. Underrated superpower. There's a lot you can do with that. That is a good one. I guess one of the, one of the, in the Marvel universe, one of the tricky questions is whether the Flash is really just stopping time or he's actually... Going as fast, you know, it's kind of hard to yeah, tell. slowing it down for everyone else or speeding up for you. Yeah. What's the what's yeah. the difference? Anyway, well, we'll leave it on that note. Thanks for joining us, Andy. It's a real pleasure to ask all these really penetrating questions about a subject that I think everyone has on their mind at the moment. And until next time, guys. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.